been two months since the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference, and there are clear indications that countries want the UN negotiations to make further progress. This is Ivo de Boer, who oversaw global climate talks for four years as Executive Secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, from August of 2006 to July 2010. Without question, a global agreement offers the most effective response to climate change. This recording is from February 2010, right after countries had agreed on the Copenhagen Climate Accord, which got short shrift in the news because it hadn't yielded the kind of top-down, one-size-fits-all target that you can summarize in a headline and explain in a tweet. But if you were paying attention back then, you saw that something was bubbling up from below. By the middle of February, 70 industrialized and developing countries had sent the Secretariat information regarding their national goals and their national plans of action. Over the ensuing five years, individual countries would continue to step up with climate action plans, and the UNFCCC, under Deborah's successor, Christiana Figueres, continued to establish global agreement on how to measure and account for greenhouse gas emissions from industry, from farming, and from transportation. In 2013, negotiators in Warsaw agreed to abandon the quixotic quest for a top-down, one-size-fits-all emission reduction target and opted instead to work towards the creation of a science-based goal while letting individual countries find their own way of contributing to that goal. This eventually led to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, which sets a global temperature goal and provides a framework within which individual countries can compete to reduce emissions in ways that suit their unique circumstances. In November of last year, Evo de Boer became president of the Gold Standard, which is an NGO-led global partnership that sets standards for everything from emission reduction projects that save forests to the way we recognize progress towards the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, which are a set of 17 goals that all the countries of the world endorsed in 2015 to promote sustainable development that lifts people from poverty while preserving nature. The SDGs are woven into the Paris Agreement and into the lending guidelines of development banks as well as into the investment guidelines of pension funds around the world. Billions of dollars are at stake, but how do you measure something like women's empowerment? And what has Ivo de Boer been doing since he left the UNFCCC? Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene. 
the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And it's a question that today's guest has grappled with his entire career. From his early days as a social worker, to his stint with the UNFCCC, to his later career in sustainable finance, and today with the gold standard, among many, many other things. I ran into him last month at year-end climate talks in Katowice, Poland, but we conducted this interview by phone the week after the talks. I really enjoyed our discussion because we cover a lot of territory, and it was the first time I really had a chance to speak with Ivo outside of formal events. A quick warning, the sound quality is a bit iffy. Ivo was on the phone and I was using a new set of headphones, so we both sound alternately crackly and robotic. But the content itself is, I think, fascinating, and I hope you do too. First, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, the last time we spoke was at the 2016 Climate Talks in Marrakesh, and it was the day after Donald Trump had been elected president of the United States. You were pretty optimistic then, and I'm wondering if you're still optimistic with the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil and the general backsliding in global cooperation that we're seeing, the populist uprising in France after President Macron tried to implement a carbon tax. Are you where do you where where do you think we are? Is the glass half full, half empty, or is it shattered on the floor? Um, my sense is that the that the glass is more than half full because of the growing global understanding of of, of climate change as an issue um, and the desire to see it be addressed. There will always be skeptics, but by and large. People set the science, they find the science to be credible. They see that a lot of the things that in the past relied on, on scenarios and assumptions, people see that reality is now beginning to, to bear out the accuracy uh, of the scenarios, so that's good. Where the glass becomes a little bit more half-empty or significantly more half-empty is when it comes to the willingness to make difficult decisions that go along with taking the science seriously and acting on climate change, especially when some of those difficult decisions affect people personally, especially in the, in the financial sphere. And what we're seeing is the, the politics in, in some places sitting in, in the middle of that, um, in the sense of, of either politicians um, who said, well, we're not entirely convinced and we certainly don't think we should be making um, expensive choices that will hurt people's jobs. Um, Trump is, is in that camp. Um, maybe Bolsonaro to, uh, to, to some extent as well. And then a number of politicians who are afraid of making difficult political choices associated with action on climate change, which might have a, a backlash of which um, the French president, Macron, uh, is an example. He, he tried to introduce environmental taxation. Incidentally, he wasn't spending much of the revenue or planning to spend much of the revenue on the environment, but he, he introduced environmental uh, legislation and then got um, a, a backlash on that. Uh, a little while ago, I was actually talking to a, a former president of Indonesia, Yudhiyono, who told me that he had three times tried to increase gasoline prices and had uh, riots out on uh, on the street uh, and had to withdraw those measures. Um, 
incidentally, in, in both instances, um, in the case of Macron and the case of Indonesia, um, although environmental re regulation was the trigger, um, I don't think it's actually uh, an, an aversion to environmental action that, that was the root cause. It was simply an environmental tax that, that got along, that got, that got people angry. They protested to that, and they protested against the level of taxation rather than against um, uh, a measure to, to address climate change. Um, understanding of the science is growing, but we're still struggling to accept the economic and financial consequences of uh, recognizing the issue that is becoming ever more evident. Sorry for that very long and complicated. No, that was great. It was a good arc, and it sets up the issues that I wanted to get into here, which is how to do policy right and, and also how to, uh, how to sell it. I mean, you, you mentioned Indonesia. And they have, as I understand it, a gasoline subsidy right now. So if you're trying to go from a subsidy to a tax, I can see how that would be kind of a shock to the system. And at the same time, isn't that what leadership is all about? Uh, you know, selling rather than pandering. I mean, you know, staying with Indonesia, I had a conversation with... Um, Benny Hernedi, he's a Bopati, a district leader, and he said that he was having a hard time campaigning on climate and sustainable forestry until they had these wildfires a few years back. And then all of a sudden, air pollution was everywhere. It was tangible, a tangible uh, health issue. And they were able to get people to more sustainably manage their palm oil and other cash crops because you know forests were being burned to make way for these crops and at the same time they linked it to climate change but that but that connection didn't just happen they sold it they actively went out and connected it for people and we're seeing the same thing in the United States when you talk about climate change people's eyes used to kind of glaze over but then we saw California burning uh, a lot of farmers saw their harvests coming in late I talked to a guy in Katowice who's still harvesting his soybeans, I think, which is very late, people became receptive. But it's up to leaders to use that receptivity. Leadership is about selling people on something rather than just going with what people want, right? Sure. But, I mean, if you, if you look at the example of, of a few subsidies which you mentioned, Generally, those fuel subsidies benefit middle-income people and, and richer people to a significantly greater degree than, than the poor, um, if only because the poor ride around on bicycles rather than in, uh, in, in automobiles. And you see in a number of countries where, for example, electricity is subsidized, that it's the middle-income families with eight air conditioners that benefit more than you know the person sitting outside their hut with maybe a, an electric fan at, uh, at best. And those middle-income and richer people tend to have the ear of the politicians and are much more vocal in, in, in terms of, of protesting. So often it's the poor who would stand to benefit most from environmental regulation that benefit, benefit least from, from subsidies, whereas the, the middle-income and the richer people who benefit most from the subsidies uh, are significantly more vocal and, uh, and listened to by, um, by the politicians. I suppose to your your earlier point about politicians and, and leadership, 
Actually, the only thing that you really need in order to be a successful leader is followers. The, the problem is if you do things that your followers don't like, um, then you're likely to lose them and your, your leadership position. So that's sort of the continual struggle, I think, for, um, for, for politicians that are willing to do brave things that they know they are going to be unpopular for. There's generally, I think, a, a reluctance today on the part of politicians to be, to be brave um, in favor of what they know to be right. And the, the closer elections come, the greater is their lack of willingness to, uh, to, to show bravery. Um, because if they, if they are brave and if they do do the right thing, um, there's a good chance that they will lose the next election and the benefits will be reaped by the person um, who comes after those uh, elections. And one of the things that, that really strikes me today is that we're pretty short on, uh, on, on politicians that are, are willing to show real leadership and, and take us in a, in a sensible direction. And I think we've either lost the number of people that were willing to do that or are, are on the brink of, um, of doing so. For example, the, the German Chancellor Merkel, who um, I think was willing to be brave on a number of matters of principle, um, and has now seen that basically cost her her position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and although at the same time we are seeing uh, young young people stepping up, uh, and the most recent elections in the United States give me a lot of optimism. The talk of a of a of a new green deal and pushing forward with climate legislation seems to be resonating with the with the younger crowd. It's it's us geezers who are asleep in a, at the switch on this one. Well, yes, there's, there's enthusiasm on the part of, of, of young people, but I think there's, there's also still in the United States a, a pretty significant division between people that, that, that live in the enlightened urban belt um, and the people that, that live in the less advanced countryside. I mean, you mentioned a new Green Deal. I mean, I'm not an American, but I think in the United States a, a, a lot of this is also associated with a, a political inclination. Um, I mean, I remember being not all that long ago on an, on an American um, television show where somebody called in and said I was a watermelon, <laughs> which, <laughs> which basically means that you're, you're, you're green on the outside and red, i.e. a communist on, uh -huh. on the inside. And it, uh -huh. it almost seems to imply that if you like the environment, you must be a communist as well. Yeah, there's a lot of that, that uh, a lot of the, the, the libertarian uh, push that was that we've saw in the last few decades basically trying to vilify anything that requires government intervention we'll see what happens on that before before we go into your background i wanted to just may, briefly let people know what you're doing now uh, because you're you've you've shifted from the UNFCCC then you were consulting and now you're working with the gold standard and as as i understand it you're you're going to be helping them find ways of aligning the sustainable development goals uh, with with quantifiable outcomes is that right or what what exactly is the mission there how does that all fit together yeah that's that's part of it um i, I suppose there was a period in my life where i was very much focused on um making things almost more complicated so um my work in the climate change negotiations was um about a, a very complicated um political process which I, st I still believe is is very important, but I also believe the simple things in life are important, and I also believe that 
examples of, of success uh, important, but those encourage people, give them hope that uh, in this very complicated world that there are real solutions. So everything that I'm doing, and the gold standard is part of that, I'll end with it rather than begin with it, but everything that I'm doing um, at the moment is, is associated with keeping it simple and, and showing results. I, I do three things at the moment. One is um, I'm involved in, uh, in a European organization which is all about giving innovators startup capital to bring great climate ideas into the market. So that's all about giving people 50,000 euro grants or, or $200,000 um, grants to, to basically take a climate innovation idea to the point where potentially it can be taken up by more conventional investors. There's a, a thing called the valley of death that, that basically is the separation point between the bright idea on the left hand of the valley of death and an investor um, being willing to to take it forward on the right side of the valley of death and how do you get through that valley of death of developing the initial idea. So that what this institution does is um, using European money every year give about 80 million euros um, in in startup capital to investors, which I think is great and I think is is very practical. Yeah. Do you guys uh, fund um, podcasts? <laughs> sorry. Do you fund podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's uh, <laughs> if it's uh, if it's a zero energy, um, <laughs> then then maybe. <laughs> I was only half joking there. I started Bionic Planet to help meet the climate challenge by sharing what I've learned over the past decade with people outside the climate echo chamber. And I'm not being melodramatic at the opening of each show when I say that nothing is as it was. We are living in a new reality, and I want to give you the tools you need to navigate it. I left mainstream media over a decade ago because, quite frankly, they weren't putting resources into covering climate change. And now that they've finally woken up to the enormity of the challenge, they're still failing to understand, let alone explain, the emerging solutions. If these are issues you want to learn more about, then help me help you by giving me a five-star review on Radio Public, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you access me. That's important because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to get out of this mess. We can do it if we work together. Today's show is a byproduct of an article that I'm writing for Ecosystem Marketplace. So you can thank my employer for its trends, for its existence. The most successful shows I've produced, however, are those I create explicitly for the podcast audience. It's a whole different way of producing something. And to do those really well, I need to allot more of my time and to hire a sound designer and a producer, even if on a freelance basis. Just listen to the credits at the end of your favorite big-budget mainstream podcasts. It's always more than one guy on a PC working in his spare time. If you find value in what I'm delivering, you can get more Bionic Planet by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. You can support me for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public 
like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for everyone who listens to the show to the end, and that adds up. Now we pick up where we left off with Ivo DeBoer describing the projects that he's working on today. And the, the second thing I do is that I, I have the feeling that there's a, an awful lot of really exciting things happening in the world. Um, you know, the, the climate outcome in, in Poland a couple of weeks ago, the adoption of the Sustainable Development Goals is, is all great stuff, but also some not-so-great stuff, like um, more and more development money being used to keep refugees uh, out of the countries that they want to get into or in camps in the countries that they want to get into than in society. Um, and, and my sense is that a lot of development agencies, a lot of organizations working um, on sustainability, on climate, are not really thinking about, well, what does all of that mean for, for me and, uh, and for my relevance? So the second piece I do is is working with um, development uh, agencies. So I've been working with the Global Water Partnership, with a number of, uh, of agricultural research institutions, with a number of, of finance institutions to to basically stop and think, uh, to say, okay, well, what what has changed out there that should be uh, relevant to me as as an organisation? Um, is what I'm doing still relevant in the light of that change, or should I be doing things differently? Uh, and finally, do I have the people, the products and services that can actually allow me to do what's relevant instead of doing what's maybe a little bit more irrelevant? And the third thing I do is the, is the gold standard, which I, I got into um, relatively recently, a couple of months ago. Let me cut away for a second to give you more details on the Gold Standard and the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, starting with the latter. I did a whole episode on the SDGs at the very beginning of Bionic Planet, Episode 5, which remains one of my most popular episodes, with close to 30,000 downloads. You can still find it online by googling Radio Public Bionic Planet and scrolling down to Episode 5 but I'll probably spruce it up a bit and rerun it as an encore episode soon. In a nutshell, the SDGs are 17 sustainability goals that every country in the world signed off on in 2015. They've since been woven into the lending guidelines of development banks around the world, and socially-minded investors like pension funds are beginning to pay attention as well. The SDGs provide a standardized way for investors and especially pension funds measure the sustainability of companies they invest in. And more than half of the 100 largest companies in the world have pledged to support the SDGs. But how do you make sure it's not just a bunch of blah blah To begin with, the 17 goals are broken down into 169 specific targets. And these targets are further broken down into more than 300 so-called indicators of success. Some of these indicators are pretty concrete and easy to verify. For example, goal three is to ensure healthy lives and promote well-being for people of all ages. Some of the targets they've created under that aim to reduce specific diseases. And the indicator for each disease is the number of new infections per thousand people. Other indicators are fuzzier and look at things like teacher qualifications, which vary from country to country and even district to district. So how do you turn these indicators into verifiable units of measure? Well, that's where the gold standard comes in. 
Like the verified carbon standard, which we've covered before, the gold standard has spent years creating science-based ways of quantifying the greenhouse gas impacts of programs that save forests and develop wind farms, among other things. In these cases, the amount of greenhouse gas was the easy part. The hard part has been quantifying the impact of human action on those gases. And now these same standard-setting bodies are creating sustainable development standards built around the 300-plus SDG indicators. If you're a bit lost, don't worry. I'll cover this all in more and hopefully simpler detail in another episode. And we'll loop back to the SDGs in a bit today, too. But first, I asked Evo for more detail on the funding initiative that he mentioned earlier. The, the funding initiative that you're working with, what, what's it called? Did, I don't know if you mentioned uh, that. It, it, it's, it's an organization called um, Climate Kick. Um, so the, it, it's, well, let me describe this rather irreverently. Um, it, it, it's built on the, the, the California model that you take um, two handfuls of money, you throw it in the air, uh, and some of it will land on stony ground and some of it will land on, on fertile ground. Um, and that model of, of, of really investing in innovation worked well in California, worked well in the U.S. So the European Commission a number of years ago decided in a number of areas that they were going to um, invest in, in, in innovation. Um, so they did that in, the European Commission did that in a number of areas which they felt were, were key to the future modernization of, uh, of Europe. Um, so on healthcare, on, on, on ICT, on transport, on energy, and happily on, on climate change. So this, this organization uh, every year gets, gets 80 million euros from the European Commission to pass that money on uh, to, to innovators, to people with bright ideas. Um, I know you don't invest in podcasts, but what are some of the things you do invest in? Can you describe one? What I think is a fantastic project uh, called Second Skin. Um, and the idea of the Second Skin project is that it, it's really, really difficult and expensive to insulate uh, a building from the inside, an existing building. But what about if you put a second skin around it? What about if you put a layer of insulation around the outside uh, and make it look attractive? That's um, just as effective, uh, a lot cheaper, a lot faster, less complicated, etc. So, uh, that kind of stuff. Just simple, simple solutions that uh, everyone says, "Jesus, why didn't I think of that?" Yeah. Um, maybe we can come back to the gold standard now. I find it intellectually fascinating that you guys are trying to measure these fuzzy things like women's empowerment. I'm, I'm actually working on a story about that one. But what is it that drew you to gold standard? Uh, it strikes a balance in, in interests. And what I mean by that is, on, on the one hand, you have um, a bunch of people who believe, yes, climate action needs to be taken, but they'd like to take it as cheaply and as cost-effectively as possible. And they think that um, emission credits, buying um, emission reductions from the people that can achieve the most cheaply, uh, is a good way of helping the environment and your wallet at the same time. And on the other hand, you have a bunch of people who feel that um, action on climate change shouldn't only be about reducing emissions, but about 
uh, investing in sustainable development and, and taking societies and, uh, and economic growth in, in a different direction. And what the gold standard does is basically focus on, on both of those to, first of all, ensure through certification that if somebody claims to have reduced a ton of emissions, that they really have, um, that it's a real reduction, that it brings a real climate benefit. And secondly, through more recent work, which um, focuses on measuring what people are really doing to achieve the sustainable development goals, also giving a, a quality tag on that, also certifying on that. So what, um, what the gold standard is basically doing is giving um, investors and the communities who benefit from, from action the confidence that what is being done means a real contribution to reducing emissions and uh, a real contribution to sustainable development. So those three things that I do um, at the moment, apart from working in my garden, um, are all about trying to do real, small-scale, credible stuff that, that leads to real change. I think it'd be interesting to, to, to kind of go back and trace your, your own development and how you got here. You were born in Vienna, you studied social work, and then you ended up in this in finance. You've got a really interesting uh, history here. Can you talk a little bit about how you, how you got into this particular field, what, you, you know, what your milestones were in your life? Yeah, after I'd done my, my compulsory military service, um, I, I did a, a degree in social work um, with a, a specialization in prisoner rehabilitation or probation, as it's called in, in some part of the world, or, or parole, I think it's called in, in the U.S., um, at the end of that, that, that course, there was an, an internship, which I did in, in the Dutch city of Leiden. Um, now, Leiden has um, the, the oldest university uh, in the Netherlands, so there's a, a lot of extremely intelligent uh, uh, people walking around in Leiden. Um, but Leiden also has an extremely high level of, um, of, of criminality, which is associated with the fact that there's an awful bunch of very low-income people in Leiden as well, mainly the people that, that put down the cobbled streets that, that Holland is so famous for. And my, my client base, the people I was working with, were, were mainly young delinquents. And 97% of those young people were back behind bars within a year. So I thought, do I really want to spend 40 years of my life working on uh, on a 7% success rate, or 6% if it's 94 behind bars, yeah, then 6% um, success rate, which didn't seem very appealing. Plus, I had the feeling that from that job, I wasn't able to help the people with what they needed most, which was jobs and income uh, and a different environment. So I, I never went into that profession, and then... You know, when you've got a degree in social work with a specialization in rehabilitation, <laughs> it, it's not a very relevant CV to do other things with. But I happen to speak five languages, so I managed to get a, a job in the international um, department of a, of a housing ministry. And then a couple of years later, I'd sort of been working on, on housing for a number of years, which is, which is extremely practical, uh, and I wanted to do something completely different. Uh, and then I saw a job... Um, to become head of the climate change department in the environment ministry. And I thought, well, what can be more different from housing than climate change? So I made the switch and then 
got hooked, uh, and I've sort of been a climate junkie ever since because the, I think the thing that, that fascinates me most about climate, um, maybe ne next to the, the severity of the, of the problem or the magnitude of the challenge, is the incredible um, complexity of, uh, of the solution. Because though climate is an environmental issue in its solution, it's fundamentally an economic challenge. Um, and it, it, it really reaches into every aspect of, uh, of our social fabric, uh, energy, transport, uh, agriculture, um, you name it. it. It cuts right across society. Um, so that's fascinating in its complexity. But secondly, the fact that um, interests are so hugely different. Both you and I were in Poland um, a little while ago at the Climate Change Conference where an awful lot of people earn an income out of coal mining and they'd like to continue doing that. Uh, you've got countries like Saudi Arabia, which get 97% of their um, national income from, uh, from, from oil and gas. Um, but there are also small island developing states which could disappear as a result of sea level rise. Uh, so it's complicated, and that makes it fascinating. Okay. And, that, and your most high-profile position was as... Uh, Executive Secretary of the UNFCCC, which yeah. uh, you took over in 2006. What were the biggest challenges you faced, the biggest surprises, things that you did not expect uh, to, to encounter? The first thing that struck me was that at, at that time, climate as an issue was completely under the radar of heads of government and, and CEOs. It, it was very much seen at that time as a sort of niche environmental issue like biodiversity or desertification or soil conservation that um, serious, hard-nosed um, people didn't need to, to worry about. It was sort of in the, in the domain of the, of, of the greenies. You know, having, having worked for an environment ministry myself, I know that, that environment ministries are generally the, the weakest ministry in an administration with little or no influence, and they lose every single battle to the bigger economic players. So my sense was if I, if I don't manage to get this issue onto the, the radar screens of, of heads of state and government and CEOs um, who can sort of look across issues, then it's never going to be solved. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why in, in the run-up to the, the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference, I focused very much on, on the media and focused on getting heads of state and, and government uh, involved. And that worked because there used to be not a single self-respecting uh, government leader who would come to a climate conference. And in Copenhagen, there were over 80, not all the, the right ones, uh, I remember bumping into Mr. Gaddafi there and Ahmadinejad and uh, Mugabe, but there was also Obama and Merkel, and um, I think getting it to that level has helped, at least I, I hoped it's helped. And the second thing that struck me was the complete lack of understanding of the, uh, of the economics of climate change when, when I got into this topic. So there was a great deal of, of focus on um, the negative environmental impacts, but there was almost no focus on getting the economics of climate climate action right. And if, if you bear in mind that 
80% of, of at least CO2 emissions are, are energy-related CO2 emissions, which are significantly industry activity-related. Um, and if you bear in mind that in well-functioning countries, 80% of investments in the energy sector are private rather than public, it becomes pretty evident that um, you need to understand the economics of climate action. So the, the thing I did quite early in my tenure was to produce an, a number of reports, analyses of major financial flows uh, around energy and, and climate to understand which buttons we needed to be pushing um, if we wanted to take investments in, uh, in a different direction. The third thing that struck me is that if we had to sacrifice the, the English language and were only allowed to keep one word, the, the word that I would want to keep is the word why. And the reason for that is that um, I see people in negotiations, or generally in life, um, taking positions, but very seldom being asked why they're taking that position, and seldom being under asked what interest actually underlies that position. And I very firmly believe that unless you ask the, the why question, unless you really understand what's motivating a certain position, you can never come to a solution. So the third thing I did was was put more emphasis on, on conversation, on asking questions, on understanding the why, so that you can come to solutions that address an underlying concern rather than a stated and probably ill-understood position. Would you be able to maybe unpack that just a bit and talk about a specific sticking point that asking why was able to move beyond? Well, probably somebody from an, an, an oil-producing country in the negotiations is going to tell you that they don't want the price of fossil fuel energy to be increased. And the, the superficial motivation for that is um, that they are afraid that if you increase the price of fossil fuel energy, it's going to hurt their economy. But what, what you really, I think, need to understand is that the underlying fear is loss of economic opportunity and, and loss of jobs. And once you understand that, you can then begin to have a conversation about the kind of, of, of economic diversification that would allow a country to create jobs in new areas and therefore worry less about the increase in, uh, in, in cost of, uh, of fossil fuels. If you look at the, the debate at the moment in, in, in Poland, where we've just come from, there is a lot of opposition to climate action, but that opposition doesn't have its roots in disbelief in the issue, but in the fear of, of economic disadvantage. Right. So, and it's, and it's not coal specifically as it is, you know, how, how do we get taken care of if, if this disappears? Yeah. You know, you see a number of, of oil companies at the moment, some quite sincerely, some some less sincerely, making the transition from being uh, an oil company to being an, an energy solutions provider. You see, certainly here in Europe, utilities whose core business used to be to sell electricity and, and sell as much of it as they could. Their business model today is to sell as little energy as possible 
um, because they've become energy services um, companies. They, they don't make their money selling more and more electricity. They make their money advising people on how they can use less and less electricity through innovation. And I guess that's why when you left the UNFCCC after Copenhagen in 2010, you started working with the private sector. You were, I know you were KPMG for a while, but I was never really sure what you were doing. I'd see you at events, um, and, and you, you were always talking about the, the need to get private sector engagement. Can you fill us in on, on that? What were you doing after leaving the UNFCCC, and how did that bring you to where you are now? What I've really tried to do um, is, is to understand this challenge from, from multiple perspectives. So I, I, I started off with um, working for government and um, from the perspective of a government of a country uh, with a particular economy, um, trying to understand the challenge from, from that perspective. Then moved into the, the UN role, uh, trying to manage the, the intergovernmental negotiations. So trying to um, understand the issue from the perspective of the United Nations, which is supposed to represent all of the constituencies. And then I actually spent um, four years working with a, um, a, a big global um, audit and consulting firm, one of the big four, um, which was exclusively working with the private sector um, on helping them to try and understand um, how they could make sustainability part of the core of their business strategy. So not something that you do for environmental health and safety uh, or from corporate social responsibility, but really trying to integrate it into the core of the value proposition uh, of, of a company. Um, and then I spent a number of years working um, for an organization that was actually helping, trying to help 28 countries to um, green their macroeconomic policy around energy, green cities, land use, and, uh, and water. Um, and now the gold standard, which sort of cuts across everything. So um, basically what I've tried to do is to, to understand this perspective, this, this issue from the perspective of, of all of the major constituencies uh, involved in trying to, to crack this one. I'm trying to crack something too. And that's how to make Bionic Planet into something more than just a tax write-off. I have a friend named Rhett Butler. That's his real name, by the way. And for fans of old movies, it's because his grandfather bunked with Clark Gable back in the Army. Anyway, Rhett runs an excellent publication called Manga Bay. And he and I were commiserating about journalism a while back. And he said something along the lines of how you can spend two months on an investigative piece that uncovers something world-changing but it gets just a few thousand readers. While you then post a picture of little monkey stuck in the mud and you get two million shares. This is a big challenge in journalism today. He and I are both covering stuff that's very, very important, but not inherently entertaining. I realize that every episode of Bionic Planet has the potential to be a lot more fun to listen to than it is. And if I had the time to edit with a team of people or prep better, it probably would be. You can help me generate more of these episodes and make them better, more fun to listen to by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionic-planet.com 
or via patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. You can also help just by listening through the right podcatcher. Namely, listen to me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Finally, if nothing else, give me a good five-star review on whichever podcaster you use, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get, and the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. I work so much on the land use side, and we've been doing a lot of work on green supply chains in the last couple of years, and I was at the TFA 2020 meeting in Accra. One thing that really struck me there was how, in years past, you had a lot of companies that were maybe doing the right thing, making the adjustment, shifting to sustainably produce palm oil, for example, um, although I guess often they were doing it on plantations where they'd already done their deforesting, so there's a little bit of fudging there. But you did have some companies that seemed to be legitimately trying to purge deforestation from their supply chains. But we, we had this issue of leakage where maybe the, maybe this little cluster of companies is is improving things, and they're exporting to Europe and and uh, to a lesser extent the U.S. Whereas countries that do the wrong thing are just exporting to China and India. And the interesting thing that seemed to be emerging in Accra was the companies that did the right thing are now calling for tougher regulations. It's almost like this sense that, and it kind of goes back to this issue of of tools. You know, some, some people when they look at market based mechanisms or financial incentives, they seem to fixate on the limitations of these tools, not realizing that they're one part of a large of a whole of a whole toolbox. We need to think of 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 the the proper incentives, but then we also need to have proper regulation. Do you have any any just thoughts on how to how to walk this balance? How do you uh, implement a system where you've got the right carrots and the right sticks, and where you've got enough of these powerful forces advocating for the use of sticks as well as carrots? Well, generally, I'd, I'd say that um, that that carrots work better than sticks, and there's some. A great example from the area that you were talking about just now. A number of years ago, I I did some work with some some really big international consumer goods companies who used to be extremely focused on supply chain management. So they were focused on forcing standards into their into their supply chain. So making sure that people in their supply chain were behaving properly and, um, and and doing the right thing. Which, if you take a, a company like Walmart, which has got two hundred thousand suppliers around the world, forcing a, a certain kind of behaviour in, in your supply chain has a lot of impact. But it's also quite difficult to actually manage and, and to guarantee. And then uh, a number of years ago, we had this this turning point. It's partly due actually to climate, where the the, the focus was less and less on supply chain management and more and more on security of supply, where companies began to recognize that actually things like um, cocoa but other commodities are becoming increasingly difficult to to produce um, for reasons including climate change. And it's, it's actually really important for a company to secure supply. 
um, if, if you're a, a grain grower somewhere, you know, you can, you can sell that grain to a bakery, to a brewery, to you name it. So what these major consumer goods companies started to do was to work on security of supply by improving the livelihoods of the people that were in their supply chain. So by helping farmers to do better farming, uh, to get access to better equipment, to understand markets better, weather conditions better, disease better, etc. And that positive action to, um, to improve the, the incomes and livelihoods of people in their supply chain actually had a much more positive impact than trying to force a whole bunch of um, supply chain management rules um, into the system. So in that sense, I think people that are focusing on the, on the carrots rather than on, uh, on the sticks have an advantage. At the same time, there's, of course, the risk that people will not behave in, in the way that they, that they should. I remember years ago um, visiting a, actually a, a, a pulp and paper company in, in Taiwan, and they had one pile of, of certified logs which were going to go into paper for European and North American markets, um, so certified wood, uh, certified paper. They had another pile of uncertified logs, which were basically intended for the for the Chinese market. So there's always the risk that people will will circumvent the the regulation. Um, but there, at the same time, good people working together can help to influence that. Uh, for example, on palm oil. You now see that Unilever and a bunch of um, um, of, of other companies that um, that stand for for good approaches to palm oil um, actually control about twenty percent of the global market, and as a result of that market share, can begin to force their standards on on the re on the rest. But it it's a delicate balance. It's tough. Was it was the project you were talking about with the smallholders? Was that involved with the livelihoods fund, or was that, or was that something something different? Because I've written, we've we've covered them on the show. No, I was working for the private sector at the time for an um, um, audit and advisory company, um, and it was a sort of pro bono project um, that we that we did together with WWF um, to look at beef, soy, and palm oil. Um, and and what you could do to to use um, um, to use security of supply um, as a way of improving things rather than supply chain management. It's interesting to see how far it goes, but then you do get these companies being undermined by other groups that aren't thinking so long term because that only works if you're if they're if you don't plan to own those shares or have an interest in that company. 15 years from now, and you want to extract everything you can right now and then move on to something else a few years down the road. Well, that, that I mean, we, I live in, in, in Holland, in the Netherlands. Um, we have this, this interesting, rather macabre phenomenon um, called um, explosive chickens. And um, the, the, the explosive chickens are um, chickens that are, that are grown so fast through feeding and hormones um, that you would think they're about to explode. That's how fast they grow. Um, 
the, the, the problem with these chickens is because they're produced in this way, they're a fraction or a significant fraction cheaper than chickens that are produced in, um, in a nicer way. And what you find is, um, at least in this country, is, is very little willingness to pay for something that's better, that's more responsible. Um, so a significant part of the challenge is that, um, I mean, I, I was once talking to the, to the leader of the Green Party in Holland who said, you know, Dutch people are just like chameleons. They're really, really green um, until they walk into the voting booth and, and close the curtain and then they all turn dark brown. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're, we're great at, at paying lip service to these issues, but when it comes to making a personal financial sacrifice, um, it, it's unfortunately still often a very different story. And, and, and part of the larger challenge, I think, that we that we face is, is to come to um, a different definition of value. We're, we're still in a situation where most corporates are, are valued only in terms of the, the cash that they return to shareholders. And everything that they do to contribute to natural capital, social capital, intellectual capital, um, is basically outside the, the valuation of, of a company. So there is actually no incentive to a company to be a, a, a good citizen if it comes to an appreciation by shareholders. So, so companies don't report on the good that they're doing in society. Uh, investors don't ask for information on the good that's being done uh, in society. Um, and this is why we at least intellectually all recognize that a significant percentage of, of corporate value is actually locked up in intangibles rather than in, in, than in tangibles. So a lot of capital is locked up in um, the good that companies have done, the networks that they have, uh, the people that they employ, uh, their contribution to society. But we're extremely poor in, in expressing that. Uh, and part of the challenge, I think, is to um, to come to a more more holistic and more modern definition of value. Yeah, we saw that recently. Uh, you mentioned Unilever before, which has consistently been a pretty good actor in this space, and they were vulnerable to a takeover by Kraft simply because the good value that they've created wasn't in, reflected in their share price. And there was a, a scary period uh, a little while ago where we all thought, is Unilever going to get gobbled up by Kraft? And if they do, what happens to all these great principles that they've been that they've been implementing over the years? Um, do you see the Sustainable Development Goals as a way of fixing this this lack, this market failure? Um, I don't know if it's if it's um, if it's going to fix it, but I I think it can help to fix it. Um, I mean, you, we both referred to to Unilever, um, which I think still has um, he's on the way out, but as a CEO called Paul Polman. Um, and immediately after the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted, he, he created a, a business commission on sustainable development which um, tried to calculate the, the so-called SDG prize, so SDG standing for Sustainable Development Goals. And they zoomed in on um, four sectors of the, of the global economy, 
uh, and said, well, what about if we were to, uh, in relation to these sectors of, of, uh, of the economy, if we were to put achieving the sustainable development goals um, front and center? So what if we were to make it our target to um, supply more people with, with primary health care? What if we made it our target to supply babies with nutritious food? What if we made it our target to provide people with access to uh, safe drinking water? Um, what would be the business case around that? Um, and they came to the conclusion that um, just in relation to these, these four areas, there was a potential business prize in the order of $12 trillion um, to be made by um, acting on the Sustainable Development Goals. And that stems from the fact that, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, by the end of this century, one in every two humans is going to be uh, an African. Um, the average age of, of, of populations in, in Africa, the um, North Africa, the Middle East, is, is under 25. So the, the real markets of the future um, are relatively poor people in, in emerging economies. So, um, you know, once again, I'm almost sounding like an advertiser for Unilever, but what Unilever has done uh, is, I don't know how you buy your soap powder, or maybe you don't buy soap powder, but you probably buy it in, um, you know, kilogram packages. Um, but very poor people can't afford a kilogram of soap powder, but they can afford a tiny little bag. So what Unilever has done is, is just very simply put, soap powder into uh, into smaller packages and, and make hygienic soap, which is good from a health perspective, in, in smaller bars of soap. Um, There's some pretty dumb examples, but I think they go to show that um, there is a business case for investing in, in, in poorer people in society, and there is a business case around um, working to achieve the, uh, the sustainable development goals. Um, a former colleague of mine, um, actually from that World Business Council for Sustainable Development, the, the former president said something which I thought was um, very smart. And what he said was that, that business cannot succeed in a society that fails, um, which I think is true. But the flip side of that, he didn't say that, um, but the flip side of that is that therefore, I think businesses have an opportunity to ensure that societies succeed. We did uh, an analysis of uh, two two Dutch companies, um, Jumbo and Albert Hein, both of which have made a lot of pledges on on you know, sustainability pledges, virtually identical pledges, virtually identical business model. But then when we went to dive in to see which company was actually keeping the pledges, we found Albert Hein did everything they said they would, and even brought WWF in to uh, audit what they did. Whereas Jumbo didn't do anything <laughs> but they were both making the same claims they were both winning green points with consumers but only one was actually going ahead and 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 implementing what they said they were were doing well that sort of takes us nicely back to the to the gold standard because one of the reasons why at this climate conference and part of the issue of markets and market mechanisms was was pushed forward was because there's a lot of 
skepticism around the environmental integrity of, of, of markets. Um, and um, actually, I was having in Poland conversations with with, with people from um, from the European Commission who are very concerned that, that now the airline industry has accepted climate goals and um, um, emission trading carbon credits are part of that. That companies are airline companies are buying garbage credits, um, you know, credits that come from from Ukrainian factories that have closed down. Anyway, but what we saw under the climate change regime was um, people claiming credits for, for HFCs being um, destroyed in China, which shouldn't have been produced in the first place, which should have been regulated out. We're getting into a couple of different things here that I probably should have untangled in real time but didn't. First, the HFCs he's referring to are hydrofluorocarbons, which are powerful greenhouse gases that can trap 10,000 times as much heat as carbon dioxide does. Under the Kyoto Protocol, you could earn carbon offsets by destroying HFCs. But some Chinese companies got caught gaming the system by producing HFCs just to destroy them for offsets. It was pretty sleazy, and these offsets were banned from the Kyoto Protocol's clean development mechanism. But they've become symbolic of a whole slew of other offsets that were allowed under the Kyoto Protocol when the science was still evolving and the world was a bit different, as we'll see later in today's show. Offsets that don't meet today's standards aren't recognized today. Evo mentioned emissions from international air travel. Well, that's something that happens outside of the UNFCCC, under an organization called the International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, which I covered in Episode 8, and we'll cover again soon. ICAO is going to cap emissions from international flights after 2021, but it will let airlines offset their emissions to stay below the cap. Negotiators inside ICAO, however, are still debating which types of offsets can be used, and some countries want to use offsets that were created in the pilot phase of the Kyoto Protocol, but ended up not really reducing emissions. These are some of those offsets that are not recognized today in the UNFCCC. On top of this, there's the question of how countries will account for offsets generated at home, but transferred either to other countries or into ICAO. I've covered these issues extensively on Ecosystem Marketplace, and I'll try to break it all down into a podcast episode or two soon. But the gist for now is that negotiators at last year's December Climate Conference pushed a final decision on markets to this year's talks in San Diego, which happens in December 2019. If you want more details now, you can check out my December 15, 2018 Ecosystem Marketplace story, Katowice Climate Deal Leaves Carbon Markets Intact But Incomplete. Or you can keep checking your Bionic Planet feed for the episode that covers them. And if you want that sooner rather than later, give me support by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. I'm getting very good at weaving these pitches in and hope I'm not turning you guys off. Before we get back to the interview, a quick warning. We bounce around a bit from here on in. And I do repeat myself, but I decided to leave that in, even though this episode is probably going to be the longest one I've done so far. That's because I thought it might be good to restate some things. There's also a point where a pop-up notification makes its way into the recording. Sorry, I hope you get a little comedic relief from that. 
So there's a huge concern that although people see the benefits of market, that all kinds of, you know, maybe jumbo-style garbage is going to come into the market. And one of the things why I joined the gold standard is because they ensure that anything that they certify is gold standard, that it is real. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the, the, this issue of the gold standard started as a, a, a standard for emission reductions on carbon, and now they're going to be trying to quantify things like you know, women's empowerment and, and things that are a little bit fuzzier. Uh, sounds like quite a challenge. Is that is that something you would want to go into, or is that something that's more more for one of their technical people? Well, it depends how far you want to go into it, but I, <laughs> I think I would say that a goal is only as valuable as your ability to measure its achievement. And incidentally, a lot of them have very weak metrics underneath them. Um, then... I think having having a, a, a bottom-up process to try and measure that is a very worthwhile uh, endeavor. Uh, I was talking to a bunch of people a, a while ago who, who were working on this and said, well, let's assume that you put in, um, in a 100-kilometer uh, road from A to B in, in Tanzania. Well, then you know that you've, that you've put in place 100 kilometers of, uh, of road infrastructure. Um, but then you get to a, a whole bunch of much more interesting questions, at least for me, much more interesting questions, which is the question, since you can travel faster on a tarmac road than on a, on a mud track, um, how many tomatoes produced by poor farmers are making it to the market healthy instead of rotten? Um, you can ask yourself the question, how many school children are able to get to school um, because they can take a bus on a road um, as opposed to having to walk four hours to school. Um, you could ask yourself the question, um, how many pregnant mothers make it to maternity clinics um, that they wouldn't have reached in time on that mud road? Um, and that's what I think calculating impact against the, the sustainable development goals is, is all about, that it's not just about uh, 100 kilometers of tarmac, uh, but all about all the associated benefits that, uh, that, that flow from that. Probably that's not going to be a precise science by tomorrow, but it's still, I think, very much worth the effort. Yeah, and it gets to be really, really fascinating. I had a talk with uh, your colleague Sarah Lugers about this, and I think I'll probably follow up and devote a whole show to some of those metrics and how they're evolving. One of the interesting things that we found when looking just at the voluntary market, we did a, a buyer's analysis. We wanted to look at companies that were purchasing offsets, companies like Disney and Microsoft, that they were not obligated to purchase offsets, but they went ahead and purchased them anyway. And we wanted to see how they were using them. What we found that was very interesting was that companies that purchased offsets initially did so thinking that, that they would just reduce their emissions that way. But the the unexpected consequence was that the process of purchasing these forced them to put a price on carbon. Then suddenly they had an internal price uh, on, on greenhouse gas emissions from all operations. And, and then suddenly the emissions became something they had to become very, very consciously aware of. And then this led to them doing more of the kind of internal 
emission reductions that need to happen where they were they were able to reduce by by you know changing their manufacturing processes or transportation processes or or changing the the suppliers they purchase from so there's this issue of of how when you push these things out into into public awareness they then become something that can be that can be dealt with and it sounds like that's what you're you're kind of talking about here too well as as you described it it's about introducing a, a new metric you know let's let's say that you're in a building and you have a you have a boiler and you were planning to replace the boiler in 3 years time and to replace it today would be to throw it out three years early, which comes at cost. But you still have to reduce emissions by a certain amount. So then it's probably more attractive for you to buy some emission credits, run the boiler for another three years, and then replace it when the time is, is right. So it, it allows you to, to time, I think, um, economic decisions better. And that, that internal carbon price, which, which as you say, now lots of companies have, it gives you a, a, a different metric to use when um, when making choices, when making investment decisions. So that's that's great. The thing that strikes me as a bit funny is the fact that we seem to think there needs to be a single carbon price and that multiple carbon prices are, are a bad thing, which 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 I find strange um, in the sense that it's, it's perfectly normal for me to, to walk into a shop or, or into a store, depending on how you call it, um, and I can buy a really cheap, nasty watch, which will probably break in uh, in two weeks for five euros, or I can spend two hundred euros on a on a really decent watch. That's perfectly accepted. So why shouldn't we have a carbon price of I don't know a hundred dollars a ton, which is related to really good stuff um, like like wind energy or solar energy? and have a different carbon price for for different emission reductions which are maybe less high standard yeah or 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 that have different co-benefits yeah you know if it's yeah if it's uh, creating if it's putting you know creating a bunch of sustainable jobs then maybe it's worth more exactly that goes that goes to that point on on a broader definition of value yeah and and again back loops back to the sdgs <laughs> what um i know we're I've gone over time already, and I don't want to take up your whole day, but I'm wondering if we could just wrap up by by doing a quick look back on the Poland climate talks that we went through. What's the biggest success to come out of the talks in Katowice, and what are the biggest failures, and how do we move forward from here? Well, so in, in, in Paris, they made a political commitment to all address uh, climate change, but they didn't agree exactly how they were going to do it, and they didn't agree the, the rules on how they would report on action and monitor action. So what this conference did, and it's, it's a bit boring, but it's very important, is it, it agreed the rule book. It agreed how um, how action on climate change is going to be reported and, and measured. That, that was the ambition for this conference. It, it achieved that, uh, apart from pushing some topics like markets uh, a bit into the future. But it, 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 it did what it was supposed to do. Um, I've seen a lot of complaints in the media that it didn't show enough ambition, but I don't think this conference was about ambition. You know, I, I think you should focus on taking the second step after you've taken the first, not before. So I'm, I'm happy with it having, having agreed the, um, the rules on, on, on how, to move, uh, how to move forward. Um, I think a, a, a big advantage in, in that context is the fact that there is 
one set of rules for everyone, um, but that countries are given time to put in place the institutions and the mechanisms to, to fully implement the rules, and that they deserve help to do that. So we've moved away from that distinction in the climate regime that you're either industrialized or you're poor, and if you're poor, you're never going to be industrialized. Um, so, so different standards for for different groups of countries that that has been moved away from in the direction of a more gradual scale of all moving towards the uh, the same standards. So, I'd say that's all good. I find it frustrating, or the critique that a lot of reporters make when they when they talk about the lack of ambition, because the Paris Agreement creates a framework within which ambition can be achieved and measured and verified and 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 everything else and that ambition has to come from us it has to come from individual countries and that requires people within those countries understanding what's at stake and then it comes back to media it comes back to our newspapers and our television stations really ramping up their focus on this so that people really do understand what has to happen to get out of this mess and then you can get people putting pressure on on their politicians to go ahead and you know push push for the increased ambition i always feel like the my my tribe <laughs> of journalists we always parachute into these things in the last last few days and wonder why there's no ambition and never look in the mirror and say that's our job yeah. there's a media failure here that i think we need to address somehow yes i mean i um I, I think there's a media failure in this unnecessarily and unfairly having been portrayed as a, as a failure when it's actually achieved what it was supposed to achieve. Um, at the same time, I, I think it's a responsibility of journalists to um, hold people's feet to the fire and um, and to say, well, you may be really happy that you agreed your little rule book, but um, we're now going to be watching you on how you actually use it and implement. Yeah. The rule book he is referring to is the set of rules for implementing the Paris Agreement. And Article 6 of the Paris Agreement is the part dealing with markets. Also, you heard what he said about journalists and journalism. If you think he and I nailed it, and if you think I'm part of the solution, then join me by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Or at the very least, by switching to the Radio Public app which gives me a few pennies for everyone who listens through to the end. My, my understanding of the, uh, the impasse was this Article 6, in which it was broken into several different paragraphs, and the two key ones for markets are Article 6.2, which was about the structure of bilateral trading clusters, they're calling them carbon clubs, where multiple countries can trade among themselves, and then you had 6.4, which was the creation of a global carbon market operating under the UNFCCC along the lines of the CDM. And my understanding on the impasse in both of those was in 6.2 said that these countries could develop these markets in accordance with existing guidance and, uh, and, and move forward that way, but that some countries, and my understanding is Costa Rica was the primary country pushing for this, that wanted to add in more safeguards, essentially bringing up old issues that we dealt with in the past, and everyone thought we've moved beyond that. Uh, not enough safeguards is obviously no good, but too many makes it unworkable. So that was the fear of 6.2. And then 6.4, you had Brazil pushing for the right to double count 
their emissions. They basically were saying, we want to have the right to sell an emission reduction to another country, and we still get to account for that in our own emission reductions, um, and then we'll make good on it at some point in the future. And they also had these old CDM offsets that they'd created back in the day, and they wanted to kind of get rid of them so that environmental integrity would go out the window. So that, in my, my perception, is that was the key impasse on this. I know that Brazil one has been there for from day one, and the Costa Ricans, I, you know, they seem to be operating in good faith, but still pushing for too much, uh, you know, something that that would be almost burdensome. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm wondering is if, from your perspective, am I accurately summarizing the issue, and how do you think we can move move forward? How do you think we can move beyond this to reach some kind of agreement on markets before the next COP? Well, I mean, this this regime becomes operational in 2020, so we've, we've got a bit more time. Um, although it is good to give people early clarity, I suppose it's the, the perpetual struggle of, um, of getting it 100% right but making it 100% workable um, or making it 100% flexible and 100% useless. I mean, on the one hand, there's a danger in over-designing it, putting in place so many rules that nobody's going to want to use the instrument because it's just too expensive and, uh, and too complicated. But you also want to avoid a lot of garbage um, coming into the system. And I'd say on the second point, to the, to the old credits, you know, those, those date back to a previous international treaty, the Kyoto Protocol, which only talked about targets for a limited number of industrialized countries. And now we're talking about a, a new treaty and, and a new arrangement with a different set of rules. And basically people are questioning of, is, is, is why should you be allowed to take a whole bunch of stuff from the old agreement into the, into the new? Let's make a fresh start. I mean, under the old regime, rich countries had to reduce emissions. Poor countries didn't. Um, the atmosphere doesn't give a damn where you reduce an emit a ton as long as you reduce it. So under the old regime, if... If, if Germany or Holland or whoever paid to have a, a ton of emissions reduced in uh, in Brazil, then the atmosphere would say, fine by me, here's a ton avoided, uh, don't care who did it, who paid for it, the ton is gone. But under the new regime, where both Germany in this example and Brazil have an obligation to, um, to reduce by a certain amount, um, you want to avoid the same ton being counted twice. Uh, uh, you don't want Brazil saying we avoided that ton, Germany saying we avoided that ton, um, creating the impression that two have been reduced, whereas in fact it's only one. Yeah, yeah. Go going from that sticking point to the other end, what would you say is the greatest breakthrough to come out of Katowice, or, or, or maybe uh, the biggest surprise? We've had this, this other thing that I just referred to in the climate process of um, industrialized countries on the left side of the fence and uh, developing countries on the right side of the fence and near the two shall meet. Um, so this all, all dates back to the 1992 Climate Convention when some countries that were really um, rich in 1992 and therefore classified as uh, industrialized and now really, really poor. Um, and you have some countries um, that were really, really poor in 1992, or relatively poor in 1992, um, and are really um, 
rich today, places like Singapore and, uh, and Korea and uh, maybe Brazil and China as well. But those countries still sit at the 1992 side of the fence. Um, Brazil, China, India, South Africa, Singapore, Korea still claiming that they're developing countries, whereas in fact they're, they're not. And in the middle of this conference in, uh, in, in Poland, China made a 180-degree turn and said, we think the same rules should apply to everyone. I would not have predicted that. Great, it happened. So we shouldn't be too worried about this uh, double-counting thing. Yeah, plus countries like, like Brazil, if they, if they don't find common ground and compromise, they will end up with nothing. Um, and if they end up with nothing, then Costa Rica will end up with 100% integrity because nothing will happen. <laughs> yeah, my, my country's in the same boat or, or uh, a similar one. Anyway, I know we're, uh, we're up against it here. Any final thoughts we can wrap up with? An important issue for me is, is how close we are to the edge and, and how dramatic change can be once you reach that edge. Um, and I, that sounds terribly dramatic, but I don't think anyone or almost nobody um, predicted the internal combustion engine. Um, but once it was there, it dramatically changed transportation. Or almost nobody predicted the, the mobile phone. Uh, but once it was there, it made an awful lot of copper wire completely unnecessary. Um, and I think in a, in a number of areas that relate to climate, we're incredibly close to that tipping point. Um, you know, the, the, the cost of wind and solar has come down by 70% in the past five years in, in many, many parts of the world. Wind and solar uh, are commercially viable. There's still an investment challenge there, but they're commercially viable. And when they become commercially viable, then, you know, the whole debate over renewable energy versus fossil fuel energy becomes sort of irrelevant. Um, we've made huge advances in, uh, in, in electric vehicle technology. We're making progress in, um, in battery storage um, technology. So while the, the, the politicians are huddling in huge, dingy conference centers, um, technology is, is, is moving on. Um, that doesn't mean that we can all sit back and it's, it, it's going to happen all by itself, but um, you know, we, we need to be focusing on that. In many instances, that little extra push that the technologies of the future need in order to get the technologies of the past out of the way. That's Evo DeBoer closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. Until next time, this is Steve's Wick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. <laughs>